Our text today is in Acts chapter 4, a passage that we heard Craig refer to and found its way into Rob's prayer. Look at that in just a moment. In my junior year, I was um, I roomed with a guy named George Ashok Kumar Dash. His uh, nickname was Topu. Now, George, we always called him Topu in those days, but later called the, came to call him George. But he had come from Bangladesh and was one of my best friends. Um, we applied in our sophomore year to room together during our, during our freshman year. We applied to room together during our sophomore year, but when we arrived, we found that we'd been put in different rooms. And I later learned it was because the college thought that I would be a bad influence on the innocent boy from Bangladesh. When he first arrived, George's English was limited, but his knowledge of Western culture was almost non-existent. So I was into rock and roll. He didn't know Led Zeppelin from Buffalo Springfield. He'd never heard of either one of them. Uh, the only musical artists he knew when he came from Bangladesh were the Beatles and Elvis. He never listened to the Beatles, but he did have an Elvis Presley Greatest Hits album. And uh, we used to, I liked, I liked Elvis, you know, I mean, who doesn't like Elvis? So uh, we would listen to the album when we were studying or supposed to be studying. And I'd even listen when George wasn't there. Well, one day, George, one night, actually, he asked me if I would help him close up Whitmer Hall, which was one of his campus jobs. So I did, and we went through the, the vacant building, locking doors, emptying wastebaskets, turning off lights. So we walked down the long basement hallway. I started singing Heartbreak Hotel in my best Elvis voice. So it was a great place to sing because there's this long hallway with these cinder block walls or whatever they were, you know, and your voice just echoed up and down the hall. As we neared the end, we could see the lights were on in the last room to the right. To my dismay, the room was filled with students. <laughs> All looking for the person who had the audacity to do that to Elvis. <laughs> I kind of slid by as quickly as possible, but to be honest, my hands were shaky and my knees were weak. <laughs> my tongue got tied when I tried to speak. <laughs> Who do you think when you... Never mind. No, okay. <laughs> At any rate, I was all shook up. You know, there have been other times I've been all shook up since then. And, you know, sometimes it's been good for me. Um, sometimes I've been all shook up because God was doing the shaking. You ever been all shook up because God came near you? Probably 20 or 30 years ago, and because I know what my memory is like, it's probably 30 or 40 years ago. I remember people, would, when they saw you, they didn't say, what's happening? They would say, what's shaking? What's shaking, man? You know, at least to the guys who were bad influences on Bengali kids who came to college. Uh, if you were to ask the people in our text that today, what's shaking? They would have said, we are. We're shaking. And we're shaking because the wind of the Spirit is blowing. So this is Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They were all shook up. You know what? I think maybe it's time we were too.
When things get shaken because the wind of the Spirit is blowing, you can be sure someone somewhere is praying. I think Lockwood Church, whatever good it's done in the last 30 years that I've been here, it's been done because people were praying. I hope the result of our time together on this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is that we'll be the people who are praying. We'll be like the Christians in Acts chapter 4. We'll be like our friends Craig and Shelley. So Acts chapter 4, let me give you a background because it's important to situate what the Spirit's doing in its context. The Christians didn't get all shook up because they went to church on a normal Sunday morning during a regular church service. Uh, they, it, this wasn't part of the regular routine, and the prayer that preceded the shakeup was not the, the invocation on a Sunday morning or the pastoral prayer. <clears throat> These Christians were praying because they were in trouble, big trouble. Craig and Shelley, trouble, maybe worse. The apostles Peter and John had helped a man and then used his healing as an opportunity to tell everyone what God was doing through Jesus. They didn't get in trouble for helping the man, but they did get in trouble for talking about Jesus. They were arrested. They spent the night in jail. The next day, they were brought before the authorities, who couldn't hold them because they hadn't broken the law, but they did threaten them. You ever been threatened? I mean, really threatened? The threat immediately cuts in line in front of all the other things that your mind has to process, and it demands all your attention. I'm sure that happened to them. Now, I give you the context for this because it's important to see that God doesn't just work in religious settings like church services. He he doesn't just work when everything's going normally and well. Often those trajectory-changing moments in our lives come when danger threatens, when life is hard, when we don't know what to do. So let's look at our text. This is Acts chapter 4. I want to read verses 23 through verse 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, their people heard this, they raised their voices together, or maybe it would be better to translate that in one accord. They raised their voices together in one accord, In prayer to God, sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. 
Now, it's important to understand how all this started. It started because Peter and John and their Christian friends were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. He told them, this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what they were doing. They used a good deed for a very needy man and made sure it would be God, not themselves, who got the glory for it. Interestingly, if they had taken the glory for themselves, if they had said, oh, you know, it's nothing, we're just doing what anybody would do, we're trying to do the right thing, if they had taken the credit themselves, they probably wouldn't have been thrown in jail or threatened. People would have said, oh, they're nice guys. It was nice of them to do this. If Craig and Shelley were taking the credit for their good deeds that they're doing in Papua, Indonesia, they probably would be treated okay. But instead, they're glorifying God by telling people about Jesus. The, when Christians do that, it thrusts them right in the middle of the battle. St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. But Francis knew that words would be necessary. In fact, he and the early Franciscans were always telling people the good news. That's what they did. The early Franciscans were preachers. Living the good news, doing good deeds, provides the backdrop for telling the good news. That was the case with Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They weren't arrested because of their good deed, but because of their gospel words. The Bible tells us that faith without works is dead, but you know what? Words without deeds are cheap. And deeds without words are vague. Now, doing good deeds is an integral part of God's plan for Christians. If you're not doing good deeds, you're ignoring what Jesus told us to do. A Christian without good deeds is like a wagon without a horse. But a Christian without words is like a wagon without a payload. Good deeds and good words go together. Now look at verse 23. On their release, so they just got out of jail. The authorities threatened them, but they don't really have cause to keep them. So they threatened them, and Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders said to them. Remember what happened to Jesus' followers what they did when he was arrested? When Jesus was arrested, they scattered. But now when Peter and John were arrested, they gathered. That was a sign of growth among them. Luke says they went back to their own, to their own people. See, Christians have a homing instinct. We're birds of a feather. We have a bond, like a covalent bond in chemistry. You separate the molecules, and they come back together again. That's what happens to us. That's one reason the church is so important. As one Bible commentator put it, Christians always return to their own. They bond together, and together they bond with God. And prayer is one way, the principal way, that that happens. And that's why a divided church is not a praying church. And a praying church is not a divided church. Look, birds sing, bees buzz, ducks quack. U of M fans say maybe next year. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but Christians pray. Look, I know two weeks, you know, we're going to have another power outage in two weeks if things go wrong. <laughs> These Christians prayed. 
They prayed together because they were in it together. They didn't think about going it alone because they knew they weren't alone. They were part. They were connected. Whatever touched one of them touched them all and touched Christ. And they understood that. Look at how they prayed, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in one accord. So the opposition was forging unity in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The first thing they did in their prayer was to remind themselves of who God is. See, look at your problems first, and God will appear small and distant. Look at God first, and your problems will appear smaller and manageable. A, a Christian with a big God has small problems. And a Christian with a small God has big problems. And Christian, we have a big God. A God big enough to take care of Craig and Shelley and their kids and actually use them to advance the kingdom in a way that will make a difference forever. So first, they reminded themselves of who God is in their prayer, but then they reminded themselves of where they were, and that was in a battle. This is verses 25 and 6, which are a quote from Psalm chapter 2, which is one of probably the three most important psalms in the early church. Psalm chapter 2. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And now here's Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. See, they were understanding their situation in the light of Scripture. They had a biblical understanding of their circumstances. And they reminded themselves that they, the people of God, were in a struggle. They knew that there was a battle going on, and they, for the time being, were on the front lines. Now look at verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. See, because they see their situation through a biblical lens, they understand that there is a spiritual war going on, and they have taken their side with God and his anointed, that is, his Christ. They could see Psalm 2 just by looking around them in their circumstances. You know, it's not enough to see the Bible. It's not enough to read the Bible. We need to see the Bible in life, see how it intersects with our life and our circumstances. They saw that, but they looked beyond that intersection. Behind the conflict, they could see the strong, sovereign God working out his plan. And what was going on right now in their situation, they could see him working his plan. So verse 28, they did, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the people of Israel, and the Gentiles, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. They believed that God who worked in spite of and even through Herod and Pontius Pilate, would work in spite of and even through the persecution and threats that they were now enduring. Now look at verse 29, which is a remarkable prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats 
and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now, here's what's remarkable about that. They don't ask God for protection. They don't ask to be spared. They do ask the Lord to consider the threats leveled against them. Lord, pay attention to this. It's just what good King Hezekiah did when his nation was invaded. Do you remember the story? It's Isaiah 37. He received a threatening letter from a high-level Assyrian ambassador, which he took into the temple, and he spread it out before God, and he asked him to intervene. He said, in effect, just what these early Christians were saying. Do you see? Do you see this? Don't we do that in our prayers sometime? God, do you see this? Do you see it? And you know what? He sees. He sees. He, as Hagar said, the God who sees. Look at what they're doing. Don't ignore their threats. We're not ignoring them. We're scared. But we're not going to stop. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Give us the opportunity to keep on speaking your word. They were determined that their good deed was going to lead to the good word. They weren't going to stop. Now, they weren't counting on words alone. They, were, they knew that their deeds and their words worked together, but they weren't even just counting on good deeds and good words to have a synergy. They were counting on God. They were counting on him to confirm their words and deeds. Look at verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, the NIV phrases that as a request, but it's not. The NASB retains the original sense. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness while, it's a participial phrase, you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place. See, they expected God to act while they spoke. The signs they were expecting were were. God-caused events that signify something. Signs always point beyond themselves. You know, the sign that says cold water, 10 miles, that points beyond itself. Wonders here are a kind of portent, a sign that portends something is coming. Make us look into the future. When I was a boy, we went on vacation into Ontario, we'd drive through Michigan. And once we got north of Grayling, we'd start seeing signs for Seashell City. So some of you remember that, right? There's 10,000 seashells, seashell city. And then you go a little ways further, there was the man-killing giant clam. Boy, that one got my attention. (laughs) Seashell city. And then finally, free admittance, seashell city. You knew as you drove on Route 27 going north, something was coming. Well, these persecuted Christians were asking God to put up signs for his son, and his coming kingdom, as they spoke boldly God's word, or the word about God, which is probably what that means, the word about you and your son. Now, verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, not just the apostles, but all of them. St. John Chrysostom said, the place was shaken, but that made them more unshaken. 
Sometimes we need to be shaken in order to become steady. The Holy Spirit is the ballast that keeps us upright in life's storms. So what do we learn from this? How can we put what we see here into practice? I want to give you six suggestions. So one, pray with other people. If if you always and only pray when you're alone, something's not right. Pray with other people. Jesus said, if two of you on earth agree on anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. He wanted to encourage us to pray together. Pray together. Two, begin your prayers by remembering who God is. Then make your requests. Look at God first, and you'll see your problems for what they are. If you look at your problems first, you will not see God for who he is. He'll appear small and far away. Look at him first, then make your requests. Three, understand your situation biblically. This is probably the most important and the one we have the most difficult with, difficulty with. We need to see our lives in the biblical perspective of what's going on, what God is doing in the world and in our lives. Four, when you pray, now this is a tough one for us. Don't merely ask God to act. That's what we do. God, would you do this? Would you do this? So that he takes care of everything and we just go about our own lives with as little interruption as possible. Don't do that. Ask God to help you act and assume that he will back you up. When you act in his name, assume he will back you up. As I already mentioned, in Greek, the line about signs and wonders isn't a request. The request is for boldness to speak. The assumption is that when they speak, God's going to act. He will be acting. So when you pray, don't merely ask God to act. Ask him to help you act. Five, include kingdom requests in your prayers. Kingdom requests are bigger than our immediate situation. We're in a conflict. We're part of it. The Christians here recognize that conflict that's going on. And we should do that as we pray, and in so doing, support God's people who are on the front lines. We're not currently on the front lines. We might be someday, but we're not right now. But Craig and Shelley are, and their kids. Our friends Joseph and Becky Mephonium in Cameroon, who've been here and have spoken with us, they're on the front lines right now. Christians in North Korea and China and other places are on the front lines, and we can support them in our prayers. One way to do that is to pick up one of those VOM calendars before you leave. It'll have something each day to remind you of how you can pray for our people who are on our side who are fighting in the forefront of the battle. And then six, look at the front of your bulletin. You will find specific ways that you can pray for our fellow Christians who are serving on the front lines. And start praying for them. All right. Let's pray together now, and then Phil's going to come and lead us in an offering for the persecuted church. Almighty God, we are grateful that we have been able to serve in, in the capacities that we have. Lord, we're grateful we're not on the front lines, but we know that some of our brothers and sisters are.
and they're hurting and they're scared and they're confused. Lord, we long for them to be relieved of the pain. And yet, we pray that you will win the battle and that you'll give them boldness to speak the word of God, to be true to you. And Lord, help us help them in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.